Welcome to The Lawyer's Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 204 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Sherry Walling about how to keep your shit together as a law firm leader. The uh, script I'm reading right now has shit not written out, but like (laughs) hidden with an asterisk as though I'm supposed to somehow both not swear in a podcast that I always swear in and know how to read. Would I say it as like keeping your shit together i think you have to make like a static sound so it's like or maybe paul can (laughs) maybe paul can bleep us for the first time even though that would be completely antithetical to the whole purpose of this intro he can go back and the wrong thing paul don't me Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, Smokeball, New Law Business Model, and Case Status. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so please stay tuned, and we'll tell you more about them later on. We have so many cool things to let you know about as 2018 comes to an end. Sam, just in the last couple of days, rolled out a cool new improvement to the front page of the website, where people who are logged in insiders who have taken our small firm scorecard can now see historically all of their past small firm scorecard scores for comparison's sake and can be reminded to retake it regularly so that you can have a living assessment of how your firm stands. Yeah, if you haven't taken it yet, the idea is that you take it, you find out where your strengths and weaknesses are, and uh, you start working on the weaknesses. And you'll take it every three months is our recommendation. And ideally, you see it improve over time. And as long as you're logged into the website, you can see that on the front page or on your account page. And lawyerist employees ourselves take our own small firm scorecard to assess whether our company is succeeding according to the benchmarks we hope all of you are building towards. So we drink our own Kool-Aid here. Or eat our own dog food. Or do our own thing also (laughs) that we do. Awesome. Second thing is Stephanie Everett, our community director, is going to be hosting some small firm strategy workshops. One is tomorrow as this launches on December 27th, and then the other is the second week in January, either of which you can sign up for and participate in if you are an insider and are in the Facebook group. The Insider Facebook group has those listed as events that you can sign up for. They are free strategy sessions with Stephanie to get some best practices, ideas on tips for managing and growing your firm. So visit the website, sign up for Insider, And make sure that you click the link in the email that you will receive almost immediately on signing up to go and join the Facebook group, as long as you're a solo or small firm lawyer in the U.S. and Canada. And it's easy for me to say, since she's on our team, but the reason Stephanie is on our team is because she's legitimately one of the best small firm coaches in the country. So getting some free strategy coaching time with her should be a huge benefit to you. Although I will say, you can get the jump on it by taking the scorecard. Oh my. Because that will be one of the things she talks about, I'm sure. So now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Lauren Sturdivant from Case Status, and then my conversation with Sherry Walling. My name is Lauren Sturdivant, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Case Status, which is a client success and marketing platform for law firms. Hi, Lauren. Thanks for being with us today. Maybe we better start by talking about what client success is and why it's important. Sure. Client or customer success is this whole concept of helping clients realize the value 
that they expect from your firm services. Mm-hmm. So in terms of a successful outcome and clients feeling that you're invested in their case are the main drivers of client loyalty and firm growth. So how do you measure that? How do you know whether or not your clients are being successful? One of the ways that you can measure it is by tracking Net Promoter Score NPS. Okay, so what's Net Promoter Score? I mean, we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast, so many people know, but maybe you can sum it up for us and tell us what you can do when you know it. Sure, sure. So NPS is just the likelihood that a client will recommend your services to other people, and it's a score that needs to be tracked over time. It's a general client satisfaction, which helps you assess your client loyalty and the overall perception of your firm's brand. Hmm. And it's just the simple questions, right? Like on a scale of zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend us to a friend or family or colleague or however you phrase it, right? Exactly. And where people fall on that scale kind of lets you know whether or not they are promoters or detractors. And we, of course, want to improve the relationship with detractors and use your promoters to be your advocates to get more referrals and reviews for your firm. So how do you get it? (laughs) I mean, I think Mm -hmm. many people who know about Net Promoter Score it sounds good. They're interested. But collecting this, actually asking that question of everyone and making sure that you're getting it and keeping track of those responses seems for a lot of people, I think, like the hard part. Definitely. And this is not just getting casual feedback. This is about being vigilant and tracking real feedback from clients. And the only way that you really can do this is by setting a very consistent system, whether that's an online survey or if that's an in-person system. But it's very critical that firms set the system and make sure it's implemented properly with every single client. And case status can do that, right? Yes. One of our main focuses is um, to make tracking NPS really easy. The platform automatically asks clients whether or not they would recommend the firm at set points in the case. And this obviously helps firms know who their advocates are, utilize those advocates to obtain more referrals, and then also to be able to know who the detractors are so they can approach the problem, manage that client quickly so there's no churn with that client, and then also that helps avoid that detractor from speaking badly about the firm. So by obtaining this real honest feedback, it only will set yourself up for more firm growth and more referrals from your current client. I think that's the main thing that is important to understand about Net Promoter Score is that it's meant to be an actionable metric. Right. Like you're not just measuring whether somebody was happy or not. You're trying to gauge where they are right now so that you can do a better job of meeting them where they are and circling back, being successful as a client and getting accomplishing what they intended to accomplish by beginning this relationship with the firm. Yes, definitely. And 60 percent of people who are looking for lawyers look to friends or colleagues or family for recommendations. And that's why it's just so critical to utilize your current client as a way of obtaining new clients versus just expending all this money on just trying to get new clients in the firm through marketing. More successful clients drive more referrals. Makes perfect sense. If you'd like to learn more about Case Status, you can view more at casestatus.com. Lauren, thanks so much for being with us. Yes, thank you. Have a great day. My name is Dr. Sherry Walling, and I help smart people do hard things. So I'm a clinical psychologist, and I work in the unique space of entrepreneurial mental health. I work with lots of business owners, 
lawyers, doctors, people who have high intensity jobs and help to prevent burnout, anxiety, and help people stay grounded and as happy as they can be in the midst of doing some tough, interesting work. So I do one-on-one consulting and then I recently wrote a book called The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together. How to run oh, your- love swearing on this podcast. No swearing. Okay. <laughs> no, we love swearing on this podcast. No <laughs> I'm always like, oh shoot, I forgot to ask you, can I swear or not? <laughs> well, there's an asterisk in the title, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Hard things. I help people do hard things. Smart people do hard things. And maybe we should talk about the nature of the hardness of the thing, right? When you when you start a business, there's a lot of stressors and sources of unhappiness and difficulties and things that come up around it. So what kinds of things do you address in the book? What kinds of things do you address in your work? What are the sources of stress and, and where do they come from? I think it's so much harder than any of us expect. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I also run my own business, so I'm an entrepreneur as well. I, I sort of get this from the inside out. And it's great to have a great idea and to have the passion of going on your own and having the freedom in your schedule. And there are many, many perks. So we don't want to like glance over those. Lots of great reasons to be an entrepreneur. But I think many of the challenges come from the inability to turn it off and shift to other parts of life because there's no one regulating your to-do list. You are the one who regulates yourself. And especially when you're excited, when the challenges are numerous, it's easy to make it 100% of your mental space, which can really wear you out. And I feel like it is a little bit, there's a trite thing, but like it is a bit like a baby and you're worried that if it dies, it's your fault and you're bad and you're constantly questioning, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Have I done it right? Am I doing justice to my idea? All that kind of stuff. It's not a bad analogy, actually. Someone did an MRI study looking at brain function in business owners and comparing the parts of the brain that were active or animated when they looked at images of their business, like their logo or something like that. And the way that the brain was activated looked really, really similar to the way that parents' brains are activated really? when they look at pictures of their kids. So it's, <laughs> you're not wrong. It is like a baby, especially in our just emotional entanglement with it. I mean, it is, it is an act of creation, right? There's a lot of creativity that goes into deciding what shape a business will take and then fostering it until it takes that shape. So I guess that makes sense. It's kind of surprising, but it makes sense. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of identity too. I mean, it's a part of you and it's an extension of you that I think is, is different than when you work for someone else. So in the legal profession, we have a lot of problems with mental health and substance abuse and things, but let's set that aside and talk about (laughs) because it's compounded by those things. What do we know about the mental health of entrepreneurs or innovators or people who are starting up a business? Is it more or less than average or is it just sort of normal? There are a few studies that have looked at mental health in entrepreneurs in a systematic way. And there was a large scale study in Denmark that pointed to the fact that entrepreneurs have higher rates of being prescribed medication for anxiety. Mm -hmm. So probably some elevated anxiety in the entrepreneurial crew. Interestingly, in that study, 
so were their significant others. So like the, it was contagious, right? It it was, (laughs) the anxiety was held between both of them. There was a study by Michael Freeman, who um, is a faculty member at UC San Francisco. It was a a joint study with UC Berkeley. And their study showed elevated rates of depression, bipolar disorder, and ADHD in Mm. entrepreneurial communities. So I think when you're talking about entrepreneurs, the, the superpower is that these are folks who for a variety of reasons can't, won't, don't want to sort of take the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not going to climb the corporate ladder. They are people who want to or need to carve their own way. And sometimes that's driven by the fact that their, their unique constitution makes it hard for them to get along in kind of the normal way. So I guess, especially with something like ADHD or bipolar disorder, those things can be drivers of entrepreneurship, I think, as well as things you struggle with. That makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, we talked a while back about this idea that, you know, the hunter-gatherer mindset correlates with sort of ADHD and anxiety and and that those sorts of things may be hallmarks of people who want to go out and start a business. And, you know, so uh, it does sound familiar. I'm curious, how do you know whether or not, you know, let's let's say this resonates. You're listening to us and you think, okay, I, I've always wondered about anxiety or I feel, you know, super stressed out and, and frustrated all the time. Maybe I'm spending too much time in bed on the weekends. How do you know whether or not that's the kind of thing you should see a professional about? I think it can be hard to know because many entrepreneurs are just really used to pushing through no matter how they feel. But I think it's if you're in a in a relationship with a significant other, it's a good thing to ask them because they can sometimes give you a little bit of a window into their perspective that you might not see from the inside. Hmm. I think there are also some pretty helpful check-ins, like some of the early symptoms that we see that might point to a bigger problem is, are are you really having a lot of difficulty sleeping? You're either sleeping too much or sleeping too little. There's been big changes in your appetite or weight gain or weight loss. Usually when something is really wrong, there are some signs in your body that point to the fact that you're not well. So those are definitely not things to ignore, whether that gets you to the physician or to the psychologist. So checking in with other people, checking in with your body. I think also asking, like, are you suffering, right? All of us do hard things, especially if you're an entrepreneur. You're going to have times when you're miserable, when you're stressed, when you're feeling frantic. But are you really, like, suffering? Are you living in a life that you're not enjoying? Mm -hmm. And being honest about that question, I think that's a good time to sort that out with somebody else. That really makes sense because I think we all get to a state of where we are functional in whatever mental state or level of happiness or stress we're in. Um, you know, like when I stopped practicing law, I usually tell people it took me about three months for my stress levels to come down to normal. And I didn't realize that for the, you know, the eight or 10 years or so that I was actively practicing how high my stress was at all times. Like when I thought I was relaxing on the weekends, I was actually still more stressed out than I've been since I I sold my practice. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm wondering like how do you know, I, I think talking to people around you, um, you know, trying to assess your own level of happiness is valuable. But I wonder if you do, we just get so lost in that, you know, we've just adapted to it. It's like living with a cat when you have allergies, you just sort it just becomes your new baseline. Yeah, you habituate to you it. Know. 
And I think that's really dangerous, Mm -hmm. you know, cultivating these softer skills like self-reflection and journaling, you know, things that sound good, but most of us don't actually sit down and do. Those are really, really powerful ways for you to track, for you to collect some data about the state of your inner world. And that's another way that you can kind of catch, oh, wow, I'm heading into burnout or I feel like I'm dipping into depression. So simply to like, use a five minute journal exercise or at the end of each day, write What was your high point? What was your low point? You're not doing, you're, you're doing it for the practice of it, for the, the venting of it, but also over the course of time, you're collecting all of this data and you can see patterns in when you're not doing well and when you are doing well. Can we take a minute to reflect on what the goal is to like, what <laughs> I, I feel like I'm asking a, what is the meaning of life question, but <laughs> there's so much uh, discussion out in the world about happiness and there's a part of me that always bristles a little bit at that because I I like to think of my goal as sort of being content which is something less than happiness which feels like a state that I cannot maintain forever but if I can sort of get to the point where I am just sort of content satisfied with things that feels like a sustainable thing that I can be happy around. And so I, but I wonder like, should I be thinking in terms of happiness as my ultimate goal or um, is that too much? Well, these are deep philosophical questions. I know. Right? <laughs> How making it hard. You? Um, but I will, I will say that I, I really like the word joy. Mm-hmm. I think it, it connotes a deeper level of satisfaction than happiness. I, I think I started to like the word when someone described raising children as no fun and all joy. Okay. The sense in which it's not this like light subjective sense of like, oh, I'm having a good time. Right. But I think it reflects this sort of deeper down sense of well-being. I like that. I can work with that. being alive. Yeah. So I would, I like to optimize for for joy and for meaning. Uh, One of the reasons I wanted to bring that up is because I think lawyers are mostly like type A people who want to win. And if winning is happiness, maybe it's time for a reality check around, you know, is that is that what the win looks like? Is that actually possible? Or does success in work-life balance look like something different? And I, I think a general, like a, a general sense of joy that is sort of overlaid on the ups and downs of life feels like an attainable thing. And I think, you know, when you talk to people at the end of their lives or people who are facing the end of their lives, most people are talking about their relationships as the thing that brought them the most meaning to their life. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you want to ask that big existential question, what is the meaning of life? I mean, for most people, it's the level of connection and the legacy that they left behind in the people that they impacted. Not so much like how many fabulous parties they went to. You know, that's a really good point. And it uh, it puts me in mind of one of your blog posts that I wrote or that I read. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Thanks for writing that for <laughs> I'm me. I'm ghostwriting your blog post now. But, uh, but about making friends as an adult. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, too. I think this probably applies to people whether or not they've had kids. But especially when you have kids, I think you sort of go underground for about five years per kid, and then you reemerge into the world and you haven't been tending to your relationships. You haven't been very active and social, I think. And, and maybe this varies by person, I'm sure. 
but it, it was such an intense thing. Starting a business, if it is at all similar to having a child, results in similar things where you may be active and networking and doing all those things, but you're probably not doing a great job keeping up your other relationships. And then five, six, seven years later, you're like, what happened to all of my, my social network? You know, where are all my friends? How do you go about rebuilding that? How do you find new friends and, and make new relationships so that you can have that kind of lifetime satisfaction? It's certainly not as easy as it was when we were in college or graduate school or we had, where we had a lot of proximity to other people. Right. But proximity is one of the key drivers of relationships. So maybe like taking a little survey of who are your neighbors, of who do you bump up against at your gym or at the coffee shop? Those are places where you're already living life alongside other people to sort of to do a little bit of mining to see if there's like a golden relationship among those people can be really helpful. And it's hard, like it's hard to be someone who, you know, even in our 40s is is assertive and is saying like, hey, want to want to grab copy after our, you know, our bar class tomorrow. Um, but it, it takes that level of initiation and intention yeah. to get those relationships. I felt that I've, I, cause I've been working on it for the last few years and I'm, I'm starting to have some success because I have some regular things that I do. I go to the, I like to skateboard. So I go to the skate park about twice a week and I'm meeting all the dad, you know, the other dads who skate there. And, and I joined a group who plays Dungeons and Dragons and, and those guys are becoming my friends, but you have to be deliberate and hang out outside of those contexts too. And you just kind of have to, it's like dating. <laughs> It's an investment. It's definitely an investment. And the more you can cross, I think, with other parts of your life, the better. Like, that's why a lot of parents are friends with their kids, friends, parents. Right. Right. You're just sort of overlapping or you're friends with your your significant other's friends. And that that can help, too. Then it's less of you trying to create a new bucket of your life and you can have more overlap with the things you're already doing. So I want to talk about work-life balance, but first we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. So we'll be back in a minute to try and get some new perspective on what that might mean. We'll be back. Smokeball practice management software exists to streamline small law firms and reduce the stress of running a small business. With Smokeball, your firm is much more organized, productive, and profitable, meaning you and your staff can breathe easy with less stress. Visit smokeball.com lawyers today to learn more and book a demo. Like what you see? Lawyerist podcast listeners are eligible for 50% off onboarding. With Smokeball at your firm, it's less stress and more success. If you're not 100% happy with your law practice right now, chances are you want more. More income from your practice, more fulfillment from your work, and more freedom to enjoy your life. There is a new law business model that is allowing passionate attorneys to reclaim their lives and love practicing law again. Alexis Neely has been training lawyers for over a decade on the new law business model she created to build her own million-dollar law practice. And now, the lawyers she has trained in that new law business model have their own high six- and seven-figure law practices, all without sacrificing time with their families and only working with clients they love to serve. It is possible to experience the exhilaration of a thriving law practice, do the most meaningful legal work, have a real impact in your clients' lives, and have complete control over your schedule. Discover this new law business model now by watching the free video workshop series at newlawbusinessmodel.com slash lawyerist. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those who use traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can easily accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com slash lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. 
Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 48 state bars. LawPay. So we're back. So Sherry, we were talking about sort of the meaning of life, <laughs> the answer to life, the universe no and everything. Yeah. But let's, let's talk more real uh, and let's zoom in on something that is, it's almost become a meaningless buzzword and that's work-life balance. How should we be actually thinking about what work-life balance means and being intentional about it? Yeah. I feel like when the conversation about work-life balance becomes about how to like structure your day and get all the things in your schedule. Right. And I don't, I don't really like that conversation. It reminds me of playing Tetris and it's just not like a satisfying way to think about life. But I think again, asking some of these deeper questions is to consistently ask yourself what's most important to you and making sure that you're showing up for those priorities as your full self. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people like the term work-life integration. I think that's a term that resonates a little bit more with me. And that's looking for the spaces where you can either bring the, the separate parts of your life together. You know, my kids have been guests on my podcast or they are doing their own podcast. So we're, we're trading podcast stories. It's part of my work. It's also part of that's my awesome. parenting life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, cause it feels like work-life balance creates this idea that there's a teeter totter and one is on one side, you know, work is on one side and life is on the other. But like my work is a, is a really important part of my life. It's, I have meaning and uh, motivation attached to it and it's really important, but I also need to figure out how to make sure that I compartmentalize it or, um, so that I can be present for my wife and for my friends and my family. I guess, how do I figure out, like, how do you figure out what the balance ought to be, either for you or the cultural value of work-life balance that you want to embed in your company? I think you should be free to focus on whatever you're doing. And I know that's not a very satisfying answer to your question, but like <laughs> when you're with your family, be with your family and you're out of, out of balance to use that term. If you're distracted, if you're checking every buzz on your phone if you are if you're not fully there so when you're working like be all in your work and then when when you're with your family when you're at the gym when you're playing dungeons and dragons like be fully present in those things mm -hmm. and it, it isn't so much about that allocation or distribution of resources it's about the real estate in your mind and owning whatever moment that you're in and not letting yourself get sort of body snatched so that you're physically present with your kids, but you're really thinking about something else. It sounds like uh, you're making a segue into talking about mindfulness. Yeah. I mean, it, it, mindfulness is an old idea, but it's only it's only in these recent years where we've had the technology to be in multiple places at one time. Yeah. It's, it's hard to focus on anything else when there's no smartphone offering you conversations and entertainment uh, <laughs> from afar. Yeah. And to, to be able to really be present with what you're doing. I, and it's not a solution. You know, I get like people want the, the magic remedy for work-life balance and I just don't think there is one. But I think the question that you want to ask yourself is, am I able to be fully present with whatever it is I'm doing? In, in other words, have you have you given yourself the freedom to do it, I think, is what you're saying. Like, have you have you given yourself permission? 
but also are you taking the time to notice and, and commit to switching your attention? Yes. Yeah. And have you given yourself sufficient time to do your work or sufficient time to be with your family? Right. And so kind of setting some goals maybe for what is a reasonable amount of time to focus on work versus family versus friends. Yeah. And getting enough sleep in the, in there too. Right, right. <laughs> Taking care of your body. Checking all the boxes. I've uh, I've given my daughters a tool um, that they've, they've been using and it's been useful because we overlap a fair amount because they aren't in an after school program now. So in the afternoons, I they come home on the bus and then I usually need to get a little work done while they do their homework and stuff. And I've told them to ask for my attention. Say, Daddy, can I have your attention? Because it's different than just walking up to me and just talking at me. Because it makes it's like, a, oh, yes, I need to change the direction that I'm focusing on and switch and not try and stare at my phone and do or my laptop and talk to my daughter at the same time because that multitasking just doesn't work and it makes me a bad worker and it makes my daughters feel ignored. Yeah. And I think that's that's one of the most important things, whether we're whether it's with clients or our kids or any other human being that we're interacting with, they can feel when you're not fully there. Right. Like you can feel when someone is reading their email or, or doing something else in the midst of a conversation. And that that erodes the quality of those relationships pretty significantly, as well as the quality of our ability to show up in the best way for whatever it is we're doing. I feel like the answer is to be mindful about what you are doing and when you are doing it, whether or not you actually participate in mindfulness exercises. <laughs> yeah. Do one thing. Just yeah. focus. Yeah. Do one thing. <laughs> yeah. It's the the old myth of multitasking. I think I think we've done away f- with the myth of multitasking, but maybe not entirely. I think like theoretically we have, but most of us still function as if we're the exceptional person that actually can multitask. <laughs> So this podcast will be going out on December 26th. So this will be our last podcast of 2018. And I assume people will be turning away from, for those people who celebrate Christmas, will be turning away from Christmas, but almost everyone will be starting to think of the end of the year and turning things around, uh, maybe doing their end of year thinking about goals uh, and reflecting. What kinds of things do you recommend at the turn of the year for mental health or personal growth or whatever? I think it's a really good time to take a time out and do a deep dive on your inner life and also on your business. So it's, uh, my husband and I both practice retreats twice a year. So Mm. we go for two nights, three days, roughly, usually once in January, February, and then usually once in the summer, separately. Yeah. And it's a time to really check in. And I usually just start with a simple question of like, what in the last year were my highlights and what were my low points? What do I want more of? What do I want less of? Where did I thrive? Where did I suck? (laughs) And sort of taking that inventory. And it it leads to some really interesting insights because it's, it's easy to see, like I said earlier, these sort of patterns over time. And there is very, like, there's just nothing else like open, quiet space to think and kind of be with yourself by yourself in terms of both resetting that anxious, full, overactive mind and letting yourself sort of letting some insights percolate to the top that you, you know, you might not have otherwise. What what does your retreat look like? Where do you go? And do you make a point of leaving devices behind? Or is it a silent yoga retreat or something? Or is it just you go to a hotel room in Las Vegas and don't leave? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you want to go to a place that's not sufficiently or like not super distracting. So Vegas probably wouldn't be a fit. (laughs) I actually go to the beach um, and I've gone to retreat centers. So many parts of like the 
Catholic tradition have monasteries attached to um, their larger uh, I don't know the division within the Catholic Church. So right. uh, there are monasteries that have their great retreat spots. I usually go to a hotel because, you know, I like to be cozy. Um, <laughs> and yeah, somewhere where you can be comfortable, where you can take long walks, maybe do a little yoga if that's your thing. But it's not the intensity of like a four times a day yoga retreat, yoga practice. Like right. someplace where you can take care of your body and and rest, reset. I un, I haven't done one in about a year and a half, I think, but um, my wife and I agreed that at least I could do a retreat. She hasn't been as interested in doing it, but I think I did two or three nights and yeah, there's a Benedictine uh, university and that has an attached monastery in, in Minnesota. And I don't know if people know this, but Benedictines have a guest policy where anyone who comes and you, you welcome them in. And so they have a really nice, simple guest house there where the rooms don't have TVs in them. And it's just a really peaceful, relaxed place. Meals are included, so I don't have to think about eating and I can just go there and relax. I didn't impose rules about devices and things, although I'll often deliberately turn my phone off so that it's harder to pick up and do stuff on it, <laughs> you know, or turn my laptop off so that um, I have to make a decision to turn it on and wait for it to boot up. But I found that really useful, but I, I like your idea of putting some structure and reflection around it. That would be nice. I, um, for the first part of my career was a university professor and that's a job that, you know, you work a long time for. And on these retreats over time, I, all of my low points were about grading or committees mm -hmm. or just parts of the job that were like, Hey, this is just part of this job. Like you can't, you can't be a member of the faculty and not do these things. Right. But over a couple of years of doing this retreat process and really paying attention to the parts of my life that were working and not working, I realized like, wow, this, this isn't the right job for me. Like mm -hmm. I'm not going to thrive here. And it was because of this process of these regular retreats that I, that I was able to resign the job. And I think was, you know, very much happier for it. Like it was absolutely the best decision, but like many entrepreneurs, you know, you just, your head's down in your work and you adapt to whatever challenges are in front of you without often taking the time to really stop and ask those big questions of like, am I okay? Am I content? Am I thriving? Am I happy? Am I joyful? Yeah, I, I really like this idea. And you've actually put together a guide to business founders taking retreats uh, on your website. And we're going to include that link in the show notes, uh, along with a coupon that people can use. Um, you just type in lawyerist as the coupon and you'll get a discount on it. But, you know, I'm also wondering, like, it, it feels to me like exercise or just there are ways to take shorter, not quite retreats in your day and give yourself time to think. I get, But I guess it depends on how you go about it. Like a run for me is pretty meditative and quiet because I don't listen to podcasts or music. But I'm, I'm wondering if there you have some ideas for sort of mini retreats that you can do once or twice or three times a week. Yeah, I think any time that you can give yourself even 30 to 45 minutes of quiet with yourself and a notebook and mm -hmm. a pen, you know, sort of old school without the stimulation of the Internet, the ability to sit and think and be quiet for a while is, I think, increasingly a superpower in our kind of overly stimulated culture. So those are those can be short practices of, again, 30 minutes, a cup of coffee, a journal, or even having moments in your day, whether it's after lunch or when you're sort of tired, you leave your workspace and take a walk around the block, walk for 10, 15 minutes without a podcast, without you know, internal input mm -hmm. that it, you're just kind of alone in your thoughts. 
Um, and those are things that don't take a lot of time, but can be really helpful. I, I suppose there's value in letting your mind just sort of wander. Although I often, if I'm going for a run that is like where I'm, I need the time to think, I'll often give myself a problem to solve while I'm doing it. You know, like, you know, my wife and I are having a disagreement and I'm frustrated and I just sort of leave with the intention of letting that percolate through my head while I'm on a walk, long walk with the dog or on a run or something like that. And I find that uh, often it just sort of works itself out while I'm doing that. And then I feel better at the end of it. People talk about having epiphanies in the shower. Yeah. Because it's one of the few places where there's no, you know, it's just like you in the water. Like there's just not a lot going on. (laughs) And that tends to be a spot where good ideas happen when we give ourselves that kind of space. So I guess just don't try to fill up all of your time with podcasts and reading and, you know, leave a little bit of space where there's nothing going on. (laughs) Yeah. There's like surprisingly productive value in unproductive time. (laughs) We don't get, we don't really give ourselves permission to sit and think, do we? It's all about, I mean, you know, the last whatever, five, 10 years have been so focused on productivity, you know, whether it's, and, and productivity systems and productivity tools and software and Sometimes the most productive thing that you can do is just sit and think about a problem instead of trying to do something before you stop to think about it. Yeah, there's like old wisdom Mm -hmm. in how our brains function and in what is really optimal for us. And there, a lot of that wisdom has to do with with time in nature, with time with people, and then with time just alone by ourselves and quiet. So getting back to some of that you know, retro, cool introspection (laughs) for sure. It's helpful. I mean, I think the turn of the year is a great time to plan a one or two or three day retreat. Really cool advice. Um, so listeners do it, man. Take, take some time off for yourself, find a babysitter or leave your, leave your partner alone or, or just take off and go and get some time for yourself. Um, and check out the link in the show notes if you want some guidance on it. Sherry, thank you so much for being with us today and talking about how we can be a little healthier in our minds. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Sam. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Oh, 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 o